Get ready to come into the zone for the next 60 minutes. Your journey will begin in 3, 2, 1. The Prophecy Zone with your host, Phil Armstrong. Your watchman on the wall. Bringing you into the knowledge only found as you pursue the truth. So set back and enter the zone of Bible prophecy and find the hope that every Christian should have. Find out what is going to happen in the year 2012 and beyond. The Middle East, the mark of the beast, the European superstate, Russia, China, Syria, and more. So set back and grab your cup of coffee and your Bible and be prepared to enter the zone. The Prophecy Zone. Prophecy Zone. Prophecy Zone. God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
You're listening to the Proud Boys on Box Talk Radio. story we're following. New Yorkers can now apply for the new Enhanced Driver's License. Before Melissa Hunter's live at Seasbridge with the latest. Melissa? Well, Lisa, they've only been available for a couple of hours, but already... Unleavened bread, he was buried. He rose on first fruits, not the day before, not the day after. Shavuot or Pentecost happened on Pentecost. So do you understand the fall events will happen on those days? That's just it. We don't know what year. We're not date setters at all. But it's important to realize the events will happen. And the other thing is this. They're going to happen in order. You can't have Pentecost until he rose on first fruits. He's not going to rise until he's buried. He's not going to be buried until he dies. Well, it's the same thing. There's three fall feasts that we're going to go over, and they will happen in order. And the first feast to be fulfilled prophetically. I mean, people, they don't understand prophecy unless they understand this. This is fundamental. And uh, the first feast prophetically to be fulfilled is the Feast of Trumpets, which is tonight. It started at sunset last night, and it goes for two days, and we're going to talk about that, what that means. How about the word moed, an appointment, the divine appointments? How many of us believe in divine appointments? Well, it's nice to know God's already scheduled some of them. You know, God's already told us he's going to be there, so we want to be there. So this is an overview of all seven festivals. So the, there's basically a couple of calendars. Just like in the natural, we have a physical calendar and we have our regular calendar. In Judaism, they have their religious calendar and they have their civil calendar. And this is basically the religious calendar starts the first month is Nisan. But on the agricultural calendar, the first month is the month of Tishri, which is today. It started at sunset last night. It's the first day of the month of Tishri. So you see in the first month, you have Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And then 50 days later, you have the Feast of Pentecost. And then in the seventh month, the month of Tishri, you're going to see the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So these feasts deal with the first advent of Christ. These feasts deal with the second advent of Christ. So again, if you'll notice, Passover is separate from the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is seven days long. So it's kind of like bookends. You have Passover followed by the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then in the seventh month, you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the last feast, which is seven days long, followed by a separate feast called Shemini Atzeret. And we're going to be talking about that in a couple of weeks. And basically what Shemini Atzeret speaks of, it's the eighth day, which symbolizes eternity. Happy birthday. Today is Shana Tov, or Happy New Year. And our calendar, January 1st, is our new year, right? On the Hebrew calendar, today really is a happy birthday to the world. In Judaism, this is the day the world was created, on this very day. As a matter of fact, the first word in uh, the Torah is Breshit. We read in the beginning. But Breshit in Hebrew, you can turn it around and it says the first of Tishri, which is what today is, which is quite interesting. And so today is uh, Happy New Year. So you can say Shana Tov. Say that, Shana Tov. There you go. Very good. That's Happy New Year. Now, everyone here is familiar with Hurricane Katrina, right? Uh, don't you always have a desire to know in advance the likely occurrence of some important event that's going to impact your life? When, I mean, they at least had, what, a few days, a few weeks, maybe a week's warning. Some of them took advantage of it. Some of them didn't. 
uh, especially if it's a life or death issue, wouldn't you want to know in advance when something was going to happen? Well, see, the Lord gave us these festivals, and so we could understand the divine appointments and know uh, what to expect. And so, again, let's review for just a second for those that weren't here last week. Go to the next clip. This is from Leviticus 23, and it's verse 1 and 2. And it says, The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and saying to them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Now, the word feast really is moed, and it means what? An appointment. And the term convocations means dress rehearsal. But if you'll notice, we are to be proclaiming them. And that's what he's doing. He's like the town choir. He's proclaiming them. And that's what I'm doing today. I'm proclaiming them because I want you to understand how important they are. So let's take a look at the next clip. Uh, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles are the three fall feasts. And here's what they represent. The Feast of Trumpets represents repentance. Feast of Yom Kippur is redemption. And then the Feast of Tabernacles is rejoicing. Can you see how that makes sense prophetically? You've got to repent before you can be redeemed, and after you're redeemed, then you rejoice. They occur in that order, prophetically. And so what's very important for you to realize is the idioms for the Feast of Yom Teruah. Now, Yom Teruah, if you remember, means the day of blowing, okay? the day of blowing the trumpet. Now, how many of you have different names in one sense? You can be husband, you can be brother, you can be son, you know, friend. Well, this feast has different names, and the reason why is there are very important meanings that each one has. So on your notes, I've listed the different uh, events that will happen on this day. Just like Passover, they rehearsed killing the lamb because what happened? The lamb died on that day. So these are the different events that we're going to look at from a scriptural standpoint to see what's supposed to happen on this day. How, what is it symbolic of? It is known as the time of Jacob's trouble. That's the tribulation. I believe we'll begin on this day some year. Also, it's known as the day of the awakening blast, which in Hebrew is the Natsal, or in English it would be the rapture. I firmly believe, and I will show you today how it will happen on this day, but again, I have no idea what year. And as far as if I'm pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, I'm pan-trib. Have you heard of that? Everything will pan out just fine if you're serving God. And uh, I... I do believe it will happen on this day, whether it's the same year the tribulation starts, I have no idea. That's not, my point is not to set the date of the rapture, but I will tell you it will happen on this day. Uh, also, it's called Yom Hadin, which in Hebrew means the day of judgment. Uh, it also means the opening of the books and the opening of the gates, and you're going to see all this plain as day in Scripture. It's also known as Yom HaKaseh, which means the hidden day. It's also known as HaKidoshin, or Nesuin, which means the wedding of the Messiah. The wedding will take place on this day. And lastly, it's known as Hamelech, which is the coronation of the Messiah. How many of you want to be there when he's crowned at the ceremony, when he's crowned? I mean, there's this one song, I want to be there, when the trumpet calls. I tell you what, I want to be there. It will happen on this day. Uh, I just came from a Yom Kippur service in Gig Harbor. Four or five Messianic congregations were together. We blow the shofar a hundred times and everything, and it's awesome. And we sing songs relating to these events. Uh, some of them is awake, O Israel. You know, we need to awake. Uh, another one would have to be uh, to doing with him being the king over all the earth. Uh, and it's quite exciting. And so let's take a look at this next clip here. That's the moon with stars around it. And on the verse in Genesis 114, 
uh, on your notes. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them... You notice it says them. That means the sun, the moon, the stars, not any one particular one of them, but let them collectively be for number one, signs. Do you know what the word for signs means? The Hebrew word is in Strong's 2.26, it's oath, and it means a signal, like a flag. If you remember that the, the Magi, they looked at the stars and they understood that the Messiah had been born. And so we see firstly that they are to be used as signals, that the heavens, that God uses them to signal us what's happening. Also it says, and for seasons. The word seasons here does not mean winter, spring, summer, and fall, as you may have thought. In the Hebrew, the word is moed, the same word as festival. They were for the divine appointments. They were so we could plan and know when the divine appointments were. Very important to understand that doesn't mean winter, spring, summer, fall. And then after that, then it says they are to be for days and years. So primarily they're for God's festivals, for God's appointed times for us to realize what's going on. And the reason why that's important, if you know anything about the calendar, the Muslims go by a strictly lunar calendar. I don't know if you knew that or not. We go by the Gregorian calendar, which is strictly solar. The Hebrews go by a solar lunar calendar. So they're following God's calendar where it says, let them be for days and years. Where did our calendar come from? Does anyone know the origin of our calendar? It's what, what is it called? It's called the what? The Gregorian calendar. That came from Pope Gregory. And do you know where he got it from? Okay, he, he's the one that was tweaked the leap years a little bit from uh, Julius Caesar. Before that, it was called the Julian calendar, dated around 70 B.C. And Julius Caesar represents what? Rome. Paganism. Like I said last week, if you live on the time zone change, you have to have two clocks in your house, one for where you live, one for where you work. God has always wanted us on a different calendar. Uh, going back to what the lady had said earlier, or someone, one, I think you said, when did this change take place? We've got to realize God has a calendar and man has a calendar. Uh, we use both. They're both necessary. But to live our spiritual walk, we need to be on calendar. Uh, I have here in your notes, uh, the Hebrew calendar is the annual calendar used in Judaism. It's based upon both the lunar cycle, which defines the months, and the solar cycle, which defines the years. Uh, sometimes what we do, we add one day every four years for leap years, okay, they add an entire month, seven times in a 19-year cycle is how they do theirs. So it's a, it's a completely different cycle. But it's very good to uh, get a Hebrew calendar that also is a Gregorian calendar where you can see both what day it is on our normal calendar and what day it is on the biblical calendar as well. The Antichrist does not want us to know the appointed times. You're going to see this here in Daniel 7, verse 25. It says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he thinks to change what? Times and laws. You know what the Hebrew word for times is? Moed, the divine appointments. He wants to get the Christians off of the biblical calendar and celebrate different calendar so we don't, we're not ready and we're not aware of what's happening. So all of a sudden we, we don't catch it. Isn't that pretty slick of him? I mean, once you want to do that? I mean, if you had to make an appointment, a very important, let's say you're a competitor, you're in business, and you have a competitor, and you're supposed to meet one of your suppliers or something like this on a certain day, and then have the other guy call, hey, guess what, this is so-and-so, let's change the date. 
Well, all of a sudden, you're there, and guess what? The other person isn't. So it's very important we understand how important these times are. Uh, Amos 3.3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Very important. Uh, again, with God's calendar. Can, I mean, sometimes Vicky gets mad at me. I'm walking five steps ahead. You guys will be, get back here. You know, you walk with me. And uh, we need to walk together with the Lord. All right? I mean, you may agree that you're going to go on vacation as a spouse. But if one of you wants to go to Hawaii and the other one wants to go to California, you're not in total agreement. If one of you wants to go by plane, the other one by boat, you're not in total agreement. So we need to realize we need to be in agreement with God if we're going to walk with him. And so uh, let's take a look at the next one. It says, uh, the word proclaim there in the Hebrew, uh, at the very beginning where it says you shall proclaim, the word proclaim there means uh, the idea of accosting somebody, grabbing a hold of them and calling them out by name. In Leviticus 23 at the top of page 2, here's what it says. It says, and the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath. So the Sabbath uh, could have been any day of the week in this particular situation. And today is the first day of the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar. This is the first of Tishri. And it says it's to be a memorial, a blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. So here again, you see it's to be a dress rehearsal. Now what is it to be a memorial of? When you think of a memorial, you can also think of like Memorial Day. And what do we do on Memorial Day? Those that died in the service, right? Well, this is to be set up as a memorial. In the Hebrew, it's like a memento. Uh, look at uh, Strong's number 2142. It's zakar, and it means to mark it so it's recognizable. To remember, to make mention of it, to be mindful make to be remembered, or a memento. And so I have different mementos here. Let's say you've been to some place and you collect uh, mementos. Well, God wanted his children to remember. And so he, how many of us know we forget things? So he said, this day is to be like a memento to you, for you always to remember something. Well, uh, what the Bible says, if the Lord doesn't remember you, what is that a sign of? I mean, he wants us to remember him, Right? And he wants to remember us. And if the Lord has no remembrance of a person or a nation, then that means basically they've been rejected by him, right? As a matter of fact, in Luke 13, it says, uh, He shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. So when he says, I don't know you, he's saying, I don't remember you. So he wants us to remember him, and when we do that, he will remember us. You're going to see that more here in a little bit. So in Numbers 10.9, the next clip, it says, If you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresses you, you shall blow an alarm with trumpets, and what? You shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. And so the whole concept of this day is to be remembered. We want to remember God, and he, we want him to remember us. And so we sing here, by blowing the shofar, I will remember you. It's like the crying out of the shofar, God, help us. And we see in Malachi 3, uh, verse 16 through 18 on your notes, it says, Then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And there was what? A book of 
remembrance was written before him that feared the Lord and thought on his name. And God says here, they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serveth him not. This is kind of talking about the foolish virgins and the wise virgins, the evil servants and the good servants. That's what this is saying. Okay, you're going to know who are his and who is not his. And so we see uh, this is what one of the things that this is a memorial of. The next clip. Did you know that in Judaism, this is also the same day Isaac was bound by Abraham? When God asked Abraham to offer up his son, his only son Isaac, that happened on this day. This is what is taught throughout Jewish history. It's believed that the offering of Isaac occurred on Rosh Hashanah. It is said among the Jews that when God hears the sound of the shofar, he is moved to leave his seat of judgment and go to a seat of mercy and forgiveness. And remember what Abraham caught in a thicket was what? And so the ram's horn is to remind him to show mercy and not judgment. Isn't that interesting? So this is what we're to remember. And who does Isaac represent? Yeshua, exactly. So we're saying, remember the Lord. You know, remember Isaac. This is what we're to remember on this day. And so we see on the, the next uh, clip, uh, Numbers 29.1. Look what else it says here. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. Again, a separate verse that always says, you know, let two or three scriptures give witness. You can't take one verse by itself. And it says, you shall do no servile work. It is a day, and the Hebrew word for day is yom, a blowing, and the Hebrew word for that is teruah, of the trumpets to you. So that's where you get yom teruah from, which is what this day is called. As many of you are familiar with Rosh Hashanah, but that really isn't an accurate term. It's actually yom teruah, and this is the verse that comes from, which means day of blowing. And, and I said it last week, I don't know if you remember, but it's not... Yom Kippur, it's Yom Kippur. And it's not Yom Teruah, it's Yom Teruah. Yom means to roar like the sea. So when you say Yom Kippur, you're saying roaring like the sea atonement rather than day of atonement. Okay, so it's Yom Kippur. Uh, so Teruah, now look at what Teruah means uh, on number 8643. It not only can mean blowing, it can mean uh, an acclamation of joy or a battle cry especially a clangor of trumpets, to blow an alarm, to rejoice, and what else? Shout. Now, I'm going to give you a lot of words that you're going to be picking up as we're reading this that you may not have ever understood before, but all of a sudden now you're going to see the Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Trumpets all through here. The key words, you're going to see alarm. You're going to see trumpets. You're going to see shouting. So those are some of the key words. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 8, Paul even says, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? The whole purpose of the shofar was to be a battle cry. But if, if you don't understand what the correct sound is, how are you going to know if it's a call to a meeting or a call to war? Uh, and I look at Psalms 47.5. It says, God is gone up with a what? That's the Hebrew word teruah. And the Lord with the sound of the trumpet and that's not a man-made trumpet that's the shofar well that is exactly what first thessalonians 4 16 is quoting for the lord himself shall descend from heaven with a what with the voice of the archangel with the 
so far of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. He's speaking of Yom Teruah in this verse. Do you see that? Look at Zechariah on the top of page 3, chapter 9, verse 14. It says, And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning, and the Lord God shall blow the shofar, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. This is why in Psalms 89, 15, Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. The word sound there in Hebrew is teruah. That's why it's blessed are you if you know the sound of the shofar, because that is the sound of the, the rapture blast. That is the sound of the shofar. Now, one of the idioms, the first one we're going to take a look at here, is the time of Jacob's trouble. And why do I know that it will be happening on this day? We're going to take a look at that. Let's start with Jeremiah 36 and 7. It says, Ask now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And then Isaiah 26:17. here it says, As a woman with child that draws near the time of her deliveries in pain and cries out in her pain, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. Isaiah 13, 6-8 also likens this day like that. It says, How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travails. They shall be amazed one another. Their faces shall be as flames. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? And then Daniel 12, 1. It says, and at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of your people, and there shall be what? A time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time your people will be delivered, everyone that has found what? Written in the book. You're going to find books is another very important term for Yom Teruah. Because if you remember, I said it's the opening of the books, the opening of the gates. Whenever you hear about opening of books, gates, all these are key terms. Now here's, here's your key verse here. This is Zephaniah 1, 14 through 16. The great day of the Lord is near. Now, what day are they talking about? The tribulation. And it says, It is near, and it hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness. Very important word there. It's a day of darkness and gloominess. It's a day of clouds and even thick darkness. Now look at this. It is a Yom Teruah. It is a day of the shofar and alarm against the fenced cities. So right there in the Hebrew it's telling you this day is a day of blowing the shofar. It's a day of blowing. Let's look at Matthew 24, 7 and 8. It says, For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Uh, the Greek word for sorrows here literally means uh, like childbirth pains. And then here in Amos 5.20, we see that the day of the Lord is to be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it. So are you getting an idea of what the day of the Lord is going to be like? Okay, not good. Now, how many of you know the book of Proverbs also is a prophecy? Have you ever thought of Proverbs as being prophetic? Look at this. This is Proverbs chapter 7. Oh, we're going to start with Revelation 17 first. Revelation 17. 
It says, and upon her forehead was a name written, uh, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of what? Harlots and the abomination of the earth. Now let's take a look at Daniel 11 for a minute. This is talking about the Antichrist. And it says, and such as do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt by what? Flatteries. But the people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Oh, Proverbs 7, verse 1 through 3. He says, My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. And my law, and the Hebrew word for law is Torah. Very important. As the apple of your eye. Bind them upon your fingers, write them on the table of your heart. The word for Torah, if you'll notice, uh, actually means to teach. Law is an inaccurate translation. Whenever you read the word law, that is incorrect English translation. Because uh, most of the time it refers to the Torah, and the word Torah in Hebrew literally means to uh, teach or to point out, like with the finger, like you're teaching, okay, to hit the mark. How many of you know sin means to miss the mark? Torah means to hit the mark. That's literally what it means. It means to flow as water like the rain. With that understanding now, let's go to Proverbs 7. Let's look at verse 4 through 10. And why do they want to understand the Torah and hold it as the apple of their eye. It says, Say unto wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your kinswoman, that they may keep you from who? The strange woman, from the stranger which does what? Flatterers with her words. And then it says, For at the window of my house I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones. And I discerned among the youths a young man who was void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner. What in the world is he doing there, you know, to begin with? And he went the way to her house, and it says, it was in the twilight, in the evening, even the what? And when you hear black and dark night, what do you think of? The time of Jacob's trouble. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of what? A harlot. You're thinking of the book of Revelation, subtle of heart. And then look what she says in verse 13 through 15. She caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day I have paid my vows. So she's a religious harlot. And she says, therefore came I forth to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. Okay, they're, they're seeking you. Now let's take a step back for a minute. Look at Mark 13.34. It says, the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Now who is who's the one that took a far journey? Jesus, Yeshua. Let's look at Matthew 25. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants, delivered unto them his goods, and unto one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, every man according to his several ability, and straightway he took his journey. So we see the Son of Man is Yeshua who's gone on a far journey and he's given money, authority to his servants. Look at Matthew 20. It says another parable. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that's a householder which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when they received it, they murmured against the good man of the house. Who's the good man of the house? Yeshua. Okay, the Lord. Well, now let's look at Proverbs 7, see what the harlot says. She says, Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. The good man is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him, and he will come home at the appointed time. Even the devil knows the biblical calendar, and he knows Messiah will come back and begin 
his millennial reign on the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you know what the Hebrew word for day appointed is here? It's on your notes. It's kese, and it means the full moon. The, full, the festival of the full moon. Why is that significant? Because Passover, unleavened bread, started on Nisan 15. If you remember, Nisan 14 was Passover. Nisan 15 is the unleavened bread. On the Hebrew calendar, that means a full moon. Feast of Tabernacles is on Tishri 15. That means a full moon. Today is the new moon, and so it's the Feast of Trumpets. And so the festival of the full moon yet to be fulfilled is the Feast of Tabernacles. So he begins his millennial reign tabernacling among men on the Feast of Tabernacles. Everywhere it says he comes as a thief in the night, look at who he's talking to. Uh, this I found off the internet, a great example of this church of Sardis. You see the cemetery all around it. And it says in Revelation 3, 1 through 3, Under the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you live, and you are what? Dead. He's speaking to who? The dead church. And he says, uh, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, and hold fast and repent. And then he says, If therefore you dead church, shall not watch, I will come on you as a thief. So he comes as a thief to who? The dead church. Okay, let's look at the next verse. Revelation 3. He's speaking here to the Laodicean church. And he says, Because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and you don't realize you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich. And look what else he says. And white raiment that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And then look what Revelation 16 says about that in verse 15. He says, Behold, I come as a what? Blessed is he that watched and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. So he's directly referring to the Laodicean church. So he comes as a thief to the dead church. He comes as a thief to the lukewarm church. Did you know in Judaism the high priest also was known as a thief in the night? The, the guards, the temple guards, like the ones that arrested Yeshua, they would have night watch. And the high priest would come to see if they were sleeping or not. And if they were sleeping, the high priest would go get some coals of the altar and go over and light their garments on fire, and they would run and screaming, and they would throw off their garments and be running naked through the temple courts. And the high priest was literally known as one who would come as a thief in the night to those that were sleeping. Now let's look at Matthew 25, 8 through 13. It talks about the foolish virgins and the wise virgins. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. You go rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. And afterward, who we have here now? Now we have the foolish virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto who? Unto you. Who is you? The? And he says, I don't know you. I don't remember you. You didn't remember me. I don't remember you. You watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Who is he speaking to? The foolish virgins. Now let's look at the servant's situation in Luke 12. 
He says, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, find, when he comes, shall find them doing what? They're watching. And it says, verily I say to you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. So the, the good man of the house is going to be watching and not allow his house to be broken through. Be you therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Now look what Peter immediately says. Look at, look at his words. Peter says, okay, Lord, are you speaking about this parable to us or to everybody? That's what he's saying. Okay, who's he going to come as, you know, how's this going to happen, to us or everybody? Well, let's look at the next few verses. The Lord says this, okay, Peter, who is the faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his house, to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. That means watching. He says, of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But now, look what it says. But, and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens and to eat and to drink and to be drunken, the Lord of who? Of that servant will come in a day when he doesn't look for him. And at an hour he is not aware. And we'll cut him in sunder and we'll point him his portion with the unbelievers. As a matter of fact, the Lord, what did he say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 16, 3? It says, in the morning, uh, you say in the morning it will be foul weather today and the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the sign of the times. They, they, they didn't understand what was going on. And in Luke 19, he rebukes them saying, if only you had known, even you, at least in this your day, uh, the very last sentence there is, because you knew not the time of your visitation. They, they weren't aware. I'm going to show you a verse here that's going to blow you away in just a moment. First, I want you to look at First Chronicles 12:32. Everyone under, uh, has read this verse. The children of Issachar were men that had understanding of the what? They understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. Now, here's a verse you may have read a hundred times, but you may not have had this, seen this before. Look at this next verse. Verse Thessalonians 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you don't need that I write unto you, because you know perfectly well that the day of the Lord comes as what? For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as a travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But what does this next one say? But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day will overtake you as a thief, because you know it is the feast of trumpets. We don't know what year, but they know the appointed times. They understand the times. It's not going to come to them as a thief. They know what's going to happen on the Feast of Trumpets. We just don't know what year. The day is not to, to overtake us as a thief. Let's look at the next one, Ezekiel 33. It says, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman, if when he sees the sword come upon the land and he doesn't blow the trumpet and warn the people... So thou, son of man, I have set you as a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. So we are to be uh, like a warning to Israel and warning them even about these appointed times. In Jeremiah 6, it talks about... Now this is a verse I know you guys at this church, if anyone has probably have got this verse memorized. But look at this. It says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? That's the whole purpose of the Feast of Trumpets is to give a warning. That's the whole concept, is to warn. Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. 
Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Thus saith the Lord, stand you in the ways and see and ask for what? Ancient paths? Anyone here familiar with the term ancient paths? The ancient path is the good way, and we're to walk in it. The festivals, the Moedims, are part of the ancient paths. Understanding the, the festivals, the spring festivals, the fall festivals, these are all part of those ancient paths that we're to be walking in. And it says, and when you do, you'll find rest for your souls. But you know what they said? Look what it says here. But they said, we don't want to walk there. I don't want to walk in your path. I want to have my own calendar, do my own thing. I don't want to have to mess with that. And then look, he says this. Also, I've set watchmen over you, saying, hearken to the sound of the shofar. Listen. But what did they say? We don't want to hearken. I don't want to listen to the trumpet. Hear, O earth, behold, I'm going to bring evil on this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened to my words, nor to my Torah, but they've rejected it. Very interesting. And in Isaiah 58, it talks about how we need to cry aloud and spare not and lift up your voice like a trumpet. So you can see, do you kind of see from these verses how the tribulation will begin on the Feast of Trumpets? You can see it's the time of Jacob's trouble. Now let's take a look at the next concept. Why the rapture will occur on this day. This is known as the day of the awakening blast. Daniel uh, 12.2. It says, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall do what? Awake. And what does an alarm clock do? And this is known as the day of the alarm. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah 26.19 says, your dead men shall live together as my dead body shall they arise. And you see that word again. Awake and seeing you that dwell in the dust. For your dew is as the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead. So you see this alarm clock here. and It's almost the stroke of midnight and it's going to be saying, wake up. Now look at this verse. This is something you may not have noticed before. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. What were some of the key words for the Feast of Trumpets? Remember shouting? And the trump, the shofar, it says here, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the shofar of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so there again, you see the whole concept of the Feast of Trumpets. Now here's what I was telling you about earlier. Look at this next one. This is a full moon. Unleavened bread was on a full moon. The Feast of Tabernacles, Tishri 15, is a full moon. But look at the new moon, the next clip. This is today. Last night at sunset was the new moon. That's why it's the first. You guys are going to get a kick out of this. Are you ready for this? Look at this. These are idioms I'm going to be teaching you. Because, you know what I mean by diaspora? The Jews were scattered to Babylon and other countries. That's the dispersion. They were dispersed everywhere. If you were a Jew and you were in Babylon... The way they would only know the first day, this was the only feast they had to celebrate that was the first day of the month. Everything else was like in the middle of the month or a week later, which is easy once you know the new moon to date it. But this one, if you're in Babylon, well, they didn't have cell phones. How long is it going to take for them to tell the Jews in Babylon that, guess what, you have to keep this a day? They had to light fires on the mountains, and it might take a day before they find out, but then it's over. So this day is kept for two days, but it was known as one long day. Now, look at the top of page 7. Why is it two days long? Because it fell on the first, the new moon, and they wanted everyone to know, especially in the dispersion. 
So it was regarded as one long day. This feast fell on the first. Consequently, it was known as the feast where no one would know the day of the hour it came. It was a day symbolically hidden even from Satan, so he would not be 100% aware of its arrival because he's scared to death when this, because he knows the calendar. And so look at 1 Corinthians 2.8. Here's a good example. It's which none of the princes of this world, in other words, the demons, knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So God always keeps the devil off step. Now look at this. Because it's the first day of the month, it was two days long, and was based on the sighting of the new moon by two witnesses, it was known as the feast where no one knew the day or the hour it was to begin. So when he's telling you you don't know the day or the hour, he's telling you it's the Feast of Trumpets. You get that? He's not telling you don't. He's telling, he's telling you when it is by telling you you don't know the day or the hour. He's telling you, guess what? It's the Feast of Trumpets because it's the only festival you don't know the day or the hour is going to begin. Now, watch this one. On the Feast of Trumpets, the shofar is literally blown 100 times. And there are three different sounds that are made with the shofar. One of them is called tekiah, and it is a long, straight blast. Another one is shevarim, which is three short blasts. And then there's the teruah, which is nine quick blasts in short succession. So there's three different blasts, and they blow it three times. So that's nine, right? They blow that series 11 times. And what's 11 times nine? Did you know the 100th blast in Judaism is known as the last trump? So in 1 Thessalonians 4, when it says it's the last trump, again, he's telling you it's the Feast of Trumpets. So when he says it's the last trump, he's telling you it's the Feast of Trumpets. When he says you don't know the day or the hour, he's telling you it's the Feast of Trumpets. There's another one that's very common that you're going to find here in a little bit. And so we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the what? He's telling you it's on the Feast of Trumpets because that's the only feast they blow it a hundred times. And the last blast is known as the last trump. And Pentecost is known as the first trump. Rosh Hashanah is known as the last trump. Yom Kippur is known as the great trump that is mentioned in Isaiah because on Yom Kippur is when the year of Jubilee is proclaimed. But now in Song of Solomon 2, 10 and 11 which I think is one of the most misunderstood books. Sometime I'll, guys, I'll teach you guys about the Song of Solomon. It says, My beloved spoke and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair, when I come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The first thing that jumps out at me is, he didn't sleep for nights, he went into hibernation. Winter's past. And it says, the rain is over and gone. And what does the rain speak of? Blessings. Blessings. He said, you have totally missed out on all the blessings. You just want to be in the house. Let's say the church building. You don't want to go out and work the harvest. You just want to be in the building. The whole book of Song of Solomon is about a church asleep. And God wants to wake the church up to work the harvest. And so we see in verse 16 and 17, look what she says. Here he goes through this whole uh, discourse about how he loves, he loves her, telling her to get up and move uh, to help him in the harvest. And look what her response is. She goes, my beloved is mine. Does the Lord belong to us or do we belong to him? She goes, my beloved is mine. In other words, Lord, you belong to me. I got Jesus in my pocket and I'll pull you out when I need you. She says, and then I am his. 
So my beloved is mine and I am his. She ends up switching this around and then changing it a third time completely as you're familiar with the book. But look what she says. She says, he feeds among the lilies until the day break and the shadows flee away. She says, turn or go away, my beloved, and be like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. The word Bether in Hebrew means separation. In other words, she's on the west side of the Cascades and she tells him, you go take a hike, you go play on the east side of the Cascades and do your harvest. I'm going to stay here and enjoy the house. And so we see in uh, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, what happens because of that. By night on my bed I sought him. And that, like this picture here. See, see her little light is shining, but uh, in that how some of us seek God sometimes? By night on our bed. She says, whom my soul loves. I sought him, but what happens? I found him not. And then now, she says, I will get up and go about the city and in the broad ways. Broad is the way of destruction. And so now she's seeking him, uh, and she says, I sought him, but I found him not. So here, and this is the spring rains. She's totally missed out on the spring rains, and now we're going to the fall rains. Look at Song of Solomon 5, verse 2 through 6. She says, I sleep. The word sleep here in the Hebrew is different than what you might think in the English. How many of us know we put our dog to sleep? But that's a different sleep than when we sleep. This sleep here means sleep to the point of death. It's the same sleep as those that sleep in the dust of the earth. But she says, my heart wakes. So it's like her heart's just barely beating. She's almost dead. And she says, oh, it's the voice of my beloved that knocketh. And the word knock here is not rap. It's to beat severely as if he's pounding on the door this time. And this time he says, instead of rise, my love, my fair one, he says, open to me, my sister, my love, my, uh, my undefiled. My head is filled with what? Dew. And my locks with what? The drops of the night. In other words, it's pouring down rain. And he doesn't want inside, he wants her outside to enjoy the blessings. He's saying, open the door and come out. But look what her response is. She goes, I've taken off my coat. You want me to put it on? I've washed my feet. You want me to get my feet dirty? It says, my beloved put his hand by the hole of the door. My bowels are moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh. My fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the what? She not only had it shut, she had it locked and barred. She wasn't at the window eagerly expecting the Messiah's return. She was sleeping, and when he returned, she had to take time to gust herself up before she overopened the door. And it says this, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. This is a type of the festivals and the people that aren't watching and paying attention. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 5.14, this is a Brit Hadashah, or New Testament verse, look what it says. Wherefore he saith what? Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. That's referring directly back to the Song of Solomon here. A good example. Now here's a good example of the day of judgment, or the opening of the books, or the opening of the gates. Did you know God has always desired to forewarn us before he brings judgment? Doesn't he? I mean, isn't that God? He always wants to warn us first. It says uh, uh, the number 40 has always been a time for testing and uh, warning. If you remember, there was 40 days for Nineveh. Remember that? There was 40 days uh, for Moses after the golden calf. He tried to go up and make atonement. Uh, 40 days, the Lord was in the wilderness. Uh, the 12 spies spied the land for how long? 40 days. 
Uh, in Numbers 13, 24, and 25, uh, it says the place was called the Brook Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes. So what does that tell you when you read that? The grape harvest is in the fall. This is talking about the fall festivals here. And it says they searched the land for how many days? Forty days. Hebron is where they found this cluster of grapes. And what do we know about Hebron? Who is buried in Hebron? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God took them to Hebron where they got the big bunch of grapes to see the three spiritual giants in the earth, but they were focused on the three physical giants on the earth, the sons of Anak. And so the month of Elul, there's the 40 days that we're in right now. The last 30 days is the month of Elul, and today's the month of Tishri. The Elul has 30 days, and now we have 10 days to Yom Kippur. That's a total of how many days? 40 days. This is the, the days we're in right now is the very same days Jesus was in the wilderness being tested. These 40 days are known as the, the day of testing and the day of trial. The next 10 days that we're in now are known as the days of awe. Not terror, but awe. And this is John the Baptist baptized the Lord on the first of Elul. And then 40 days later, he comes out. And if you remember, he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to open the prison doors and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, you know that only happens on Yom Kippur. In Leviticus 25, you can only declare the year of Jubilee on Yom Kippur. So you can see these 40 days is the same time he was in the wilderness. Now look at Revelation 14. It says, Another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had a sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her what? This is the time of the fall festivals. It doesn't say wheat. It doesn't say barley. They were all fulfilled at his first coming. Again, this is typology of the fall festivals. So now let's take a look here at this. How many of you ever heard this term? Oh, yay, oh, yay, this court is in session. Who's ever been in court before? Don't raise your hand. You'll be embarrassed. The right honorable judge of the universe is presiding. Yom Teruah is the day the books are opened and all pass before the heavenly judge. And then on Yom Kippur, ten days later, the books are closed and the sentence is meted out. In uh, Jewish history, in Judaism, it is believed that every year on this day that we're in right now, the heavenly court is in session, the books are open, and God literally looks over every person's account to see how we took care of his investment in us. So that's what's going on right now in the heavenly court. The trial lasts ten days until the Day of Atonement. Your life is on the balance scales. Uh, the whole idea of a trial image uh, captures the sense of one's life in someone else's hands. How many of you know our life is in the Lord's hands? And we have ten days to repent and amend our ways during this time before the judgment is set and the books are closed. And so everyone is, in the world is passing through the heavenly court like troops in review. And we see this in Second Corinthians 5.10. Look at this. We must all appear before what? Judgment seat of Christ. I believe that event will happen on Yom uh, Teruah. First uh, Corinthians three thirteen through fifteen it says every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. And so every man's work will be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it will be revealed by what? Fire. In Daniel seven ten and eleven. Now look at the parallels between Daniel and Revelation. In Daniel, it says, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered to him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. 
Feast of Trumpets. Do you see the judgment is set? Do you see the opening of the books I was telling you about? That's exactly what this is talking about. And then it says, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, and I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Well, look at Revelation 5. This is John seeing the very same thing Daniel saw. And it says, I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. The number of them was what? 10,000 times 10,000 and what? Thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power. And then you notice at the very last verse there, or of the line there, it says, blessing, they're all yelling out, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that does what? Sits upon the throne. Remember I told you the Feast of Trumpets also is the enthronement ceremony of God as king? So you see, this is a Feast of Trumpets occasion. And then look at Revelation 20, 11 and 12. You see the same thing. Here you see a great white throne that speaks of judgment. And it says, I saw him that sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away from, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And what happens? The books are opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were what? Written in the books. So you can see the whole Feast of Trumpet is all tied to the opening of the books, the Day of Judgment, the court is in session. And then you'll also see it's the opening of the gates in Psalms uh, 24, 7 through 10. It says, Lift up your head, O you gates, and be ye lift up, you everlasting doors. And what happens? The King of Glory shall come in. And the King of Glory is coming in when the doors and the gates are opened on the Feast of Trumpets. And then it says, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Remember the battle cry was the idea of the Feast of Trumpets? Lift up your heads, O you gates, even lift them up, your everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. And then we see in Psalms 118, what do we want to do? Hey, open to me the gates. Let me come in. It says, open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord, this gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. And Isaiah 26, uh, the next verse, let's go to the middle there, where I have it underlined. It says, open you the gates that the righteous nation which keeps them, which keepeth the truth may enter in. So again, you see the idea of opening of the gates. And now look at uh, Joel, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Blow the what? The shofar in Zion and sound the what? Alarm, that's the Feast of Trumpets. And my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for what? The day of the Lord cometh. It's nigh at hand, and it's a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now let's go to verse 11 and 13. It says, the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. Talking about the voice of the day of the Lord. This is a prophecy that was just fulfilled very recently, as you're going to see here in a minute. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 16, it says, The great day of the Lord is near, it is near, it hasteth greatly, even the, what? Voice of the day of the Lord that we just read. And then look at the very last sentence that I have underlined. It's a day of the, what? Trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities. Well, now, here's what's interesting. The Feast of Trumpets is also known as Yom HaKaseh, which means the hidden day. Zephaniah 2 comes right after 14 through 16 here. And... 14 through 16 talks about the great day of the Lord. When it says, as near, as near, and hasteth greatly, whenever it says it more than once, like, yea, verily, verily, that means really quick. Look how many times he says before here in Zephaniah 2. 
It says, gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired, before the decree brings forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Here's what we're to be doing. He's like he's saying, hurry, hurry, hurry. He says, seek the Lord, O you meek of the earth, which have brought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness, that maybe you'll be what? How many of you want to be hid in the day of the Lord's anger? I don't know if it's up, out, or where. Just the fact that you're being hidden is a good thing. But look at the very next verse. What does it say? Gaza shall be forsaken. What happened two weeks ago? Gaza was forsaken on August 14th that I talked about last week, the 9th of Av. At sunset on the 9th of Av is when Gaza was, they began to forsake Gaza. So in the context of the great day of the Lord is being near and hastening greatly, you see one of the first steps is Gaza going to be forsaken. And then in Psalms 27.5, In the time of trouble he shall do what? Hide me in his pavilion, in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. Isaiah 26, it says, Come my people, enter into your chambers and do what? Shut your doors about you and do what? Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for iniquity. The earth shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. That refers to the rapture. So again, you can see all of these things, the hidden day, why the Jews have been calling this forever. They've seen this for a long time. It's like the Christians understand the first festivals and the Jews understand the second festivals, but we've got to get the, everybody together on the same page. Now this next one's very interesting. This is uh, the wedding of the Messiah. I'm going to talk about how this day is like. How many of you want to be married to the Lord? Okay, hopefully. Look how this day typifies that. In uh, Joel 2, 15 and 16, it goes on to say, Blow the shofar. And it says uh, at the very end, let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. So you're seeing the wedding taking place at the same time as the blowing of the shofar. And the word closet here is hoopah. Have you guys ever seen a hoopah before? Okay, there's a picture of a hoopah up there. Well, in Judaism, when they get married, they always get married under the hoopah. And what's interesting is you see here, when most ladies get married, they take on their husband's name. In Jeremiah 23... Look at the very last line there. It says, he shall be called what? The Lord our righteousness. But now look at Jeremiah 33, the very last line there. This is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. It's not all caps like it is in the Hebrew. And so she takes on his name. Well, in Hebrew, there's, there's two things in the Jewish wedding. There's the erusin or the rite of betrothal and the kiddushin, which is the completed rite. And so on page 11 here now, you're going to see this. You're going to get a kick out of this as well. This is the picture of Eliezer finding Rebecca for Isaac. The parents normally arranged the wedding, didn't they, back then? Well, typically, uh, the young man would go to the house of the bride-to-be carrying three items. Okay, these items are going to be a large sum of money, the betrothal contract, and a skin of wine. So if anyone came to your house, they're always going to be considered suspect. What are you doing?
Lord, you spoke to me from your heart. And I ask you, Lord, to convey that message through my lips. Sanctify me. There be nothing that can hinder the flow of the Holy Spirit. We ask you for a demonstration of the Holy Ghost and power. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you manifest yourself in the course of this message, I pray. Amen. Satan's final war plan exposed. The devil has a war plan, and we're going to expose it this morning. Hallelujah. Now, there's a final war, you know. It's called Armageddon. Millions of men are going together in the Mideast, and there's going to be a final war called the Battle of Armageddon. There's going to be a lot of bloodshed. But simultaneously, there's another final war. And this final war is far more important to us and to God than Armageddon. Armageddon is just a clean-up job for God. He's just going to clean up the mess. He's going to come forth with his power and his glory, and, and, and we know the outcome of that war. But there's another war going on simultaneously, and it's begun, and, and it's in effect even now. And that's the spiritual war. This, this is the war that's been declared, yes, in the Garden of Eden. You say there's always been a spiritual war, heaven against hell. Uh, but folks, the devil in these last days is changing his strategy. He's changing his plan. Because the Bible says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, the devil's come down to you having great wrath, knowing his time is short. Now, see, this is placing this battle, this last strategic battle, after the cross. Because he's talking about those who've overcome by the blood and those who have the testimony of the Lamb. So this is after Calvary, it's after the cross. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Dragon was wroth with the woman. The woman is the church of Jesus Christ. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. All right, this places the war that we're talking about after the cross, those who have been uh, covered by the blood of Christ. And this leads to the last, very last day of time, the battle that I'm speaking about. The scripture says, he knows he has a short time. And, he, and the Bible says that he comes down. He's actually going to make his headquarters. He's going to be among us here on this earth. He's come down unto you, and he, he's in a rage because he knows that his time is very short. This is the last of the last days. Very clearly marked here. I don't know what others are preaching about spiritual warfare I hear a lot of stuff that is foolishness. And even when you say spiritual warfare, a lot of people pull back. But the Bible makes it clear that there's a war going on in the heavens. There's a spiritual battle now for your mind and your soul. There's a spiritual battle in the Bible. Paul talks about the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Weapons of war, our war, it says. Our war. The war that you and I fight as the seed of Jesus Christ. He's going after the seed, the Scripture says. And this is the battle far more important in the eyes of God and hell than Armageddon itself. The Spirit is going to expose the stratagems of the devil for this last day. I'm just thinking of the strategy the devil has used ever since the Garden of Eden. Think of the strategy Satan used in the wilderness. Satan went after, the Scripture says, those that were stragglers of the camp, the rear guard. 
He came against the weak. He came against those who were crippled and those who were diseased. He kept up with those. He, he, he came against those who were uh, not really Jews, but they, they came out of Israel with the Jews. They wanted to be a part of what God was doing. And they were stragglers. They were really not with Israel, but he came on the rear guard, uh, almost tepid about coming into the camp itself. But when he did come to the camp, it, it, the, the, the battle then was in the natural realm. It had to do with food. It had to do with water. It, it, it had to do with just existence itself. And Satan came and tempted in, in these areas of flesh and appetite. And very little of the warfare of Satan against the church of the wilderness was aimed at the leadership. You'll find only a few occasions he came against Aaron uh, for a season. He came uh, against Saul. He came against David. And, and you find individuals, but it's rare. And you find many of these men falling, but... At that time, Satan's warfare had to do with appetite. It had to do with the belly. It had to do with nature. But then comes the cross of Jesus Christ. Then comes uh, a need for a new strategy, a new plan. And folks, the devil has, the Bible says we're not ignorant of the devices or the wiles of the devil. The wiles mean plans, strategies. That very word his strategy. We're, we're, we're not ignorant of his strategy. His strategy keeps changing. And now we, have, we come to the cross. We come to the strategy now of Satan coming against entire congregations. He comes against the laity. He, he comes against the church body. He comes against whole congregations. And it's amazing when you, when you follow it. He, he attacked the Corinthian church with a flood of lust and carnality. He comes to the Galatian church with a bewitching spirit. Paul said, having begun in the spirit, are you now seeking perfection through the works of the law? Who has bewitched you? Who's cast a spell on you? A new strategy from the enemy. He's going after entire congregations. He's going after the laity. You follow it through in, in Revelation, first few chapters of Revelation. Uh, Ephesus, he attacks the church, he attacks the love and devotion to Christ. At Smyrna, Satan cast some of them in prison. He sent blasphemers into their midst. At Pergamos, false doctrine was sent to leaven the church. At Thyatira, the devil sent teachers in with the Jezebel spirit to seduce the congregations into fornication. And when you come to Sardis, you find formality and deadness cast upon them. And at Laodicea, the spirit of lukewarmness, covetousness, materialism, blinded the whole congregation. You see, he's going after the laity. He's going after the congregation. He's going after the masses of believers. You very, find, very seldom do you find in the New Testament him going after or being able to bring down spiritual leadership. Those who are spiritual men, leaders of the church of Jesus Christ. You, you find him coming again as he did in the Old Testament. Shipwrecks, beatings, jailings. He comes after Paul in the flesh. But you don't see Paul folding under it. You don't hear Peter. And you hear none of the disciples other than Judas. 
He's not, the battle now is for the church, the laity. He, he's going after, he's coming stages, you see, works in the natural, that he comes against the congregation, and we're going to see in just a moment where he's moving now. And I know I got this from the Holy Spirit, and God's been dealing with my heart on this issue very strongly, and it's impacted my, my, my spiritual life, and I trust it'll do the same for you this morning. You see, the buffetings were, yes, they were against the flesh, and also in the spiritual realm. But you find it against the masses. And I'm saying now that in this last day, in this short period of time, the devil with such wrath knows he has to change his strategy. And the strategy is this. I'm going after the leaders. I'm going to focus all my attention on everyone who has spiritual authority. Everyone who walks close to Christ. Every prayer warrior. I'm going after their, I'm going after their very faith. I'm going after their homes, their marriages. I'm going to try to paralyze every spiritual man and woman on the face of the earth. Now, you find a, a, a little glimpse of this strategy in the Old Testament the devil used. Ahab and, and uh, Jehoshaphat are waging war, declared war on Syria. And the devil changed his strategy. Just a little glimpse of what was to come in the last days. I'm sure Satan remembered that strategy and how it worked. He had 32 captains. And he called them together and he said, I've got a strategy, I've got a plan. I want 32 captains, the charioteers, the captains of the chariots, and we have one mission. I don't want you to fight with any soldiers. I want you to go right through the camps of the enemy and I want you to get Saul. Let me read it to you. The king of Syria commanded his 30 and 2 captains that had rule over the chariots saying, fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king of Israel. He said, we get him, they're all going to flee. They have no leadership. They have no one with authority. They'll run to their homes and they'll run to the caves. And that's exactly what happened when an arrow by chance, it wasn't by chance, you and I know that, but an arrow hits Saul, he dies in his chariot, and the scripture says there was a proclamation made throughout the host, every man now to his city, every man to his own country. In other words, we have no leadership. Every man for himself. Run. And all that's happening to the church of Jesus Christ today as we see this strategy unfolding everywhere we look. Pastors, missionaries, Christian leaders, deacons, elders falling left and right. Spiritual authority being robbed. We see this strategy unfolding before our very eyes. This was the strategy used in Iraq. They were called special forces, and they were sent six months before the war into Baghdad. And their whole job, they were dressed as Arabs, and they had a bankroll, and they were to trail Saddam Hussein everywhere he went. And you remember the night of the first bombing. The first attack came because there was an intelligence report, and they called it strategic planning, and that first huge bombing effort came on a palace where intelligence said Saddam and his staff were having a meeting. 
And many still believe he was killed in that first attack. But if you remember the war, the British were given the city to the, the, that was blocking to the right and a highway all the way to Baghdad, 150 miles of troops and tanks. One purpose. One purpose. Surround Baghdad. Get Saddam. Get the leadership. Don't fight with the Iraqi army. Go to the elite corps, the Republican Guard. And when we get that Republican Guard and those 50 leaders, they'll fall and they'll collapse. And within two weeks of the war, remember, there was confusion in the Iraqi army because they said, there's no leadership, there's no one there. It's inoperative. The authority's gone. Satan's final war against the Church of Christ is targeted at the elect. Paralyze every spiritual leader. Destroy, seduce, bewitch all spiritual authority. And now you see the devil's laid his hands on every invention of man to use in this battle. The devil owns the internet. He owns it. 300,000 porno sites. He owns it. He owns the film industry. HBO. I don't even know what it means. <laughs> but I read that that's some of the worst filth coming out of hell. I don't even know what the music channel is. I don't have television. But he owns television now. He owns commercial television. He owns network television. Because you see, up to this time they said, we, we're going to stretch the envelope. That means, see how far we can go without the people rising up, without a moral outcry. Outcry against this filth and smut. And there's no outcry anymore. And now, I read in the New York Times, these were from film directors in the Cannes Festival in France, and they were boasting publicly, we're no longer stretching the envelope, we've torn it up, we're going over the ledge. That means anything goes. And folks, who is all of this, where, who, who's the devil aiming at? Now, do you think he's aiming at all the people who are hooked on pornography now? All of the wicked masses who are hooked on the lust of the flesh, he already owns them. The king of Syria said, I'm not wasting any ammunition, no chariots, no manpower on these masses. All my power, everything is aimed at the leadership. These things are aimed now. Everything out of hell is aimed. You say, are you talking only about pastors? It advances, no, I'm... I'm, I, let me tell you what gives you spiritual authority. Let me tell you what in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the devil, make you marked. In the eyes of God, marked for righteousness and marked for usefulness. In the devil's eye, marked for this final attack. Is that you have set your heart on Christ. You seek Him with all your heart and mind and soul and spirit. You've turned from the things of this world. And, and you have laid a hold of something that you won't let go, and the devil knows it. And you're a testimony of the righteousness of Christ in this dark, wicked age. If you're a praying man or woman, believing, trusting God, living in His righteousness by faith, you are marked. You're in that leadership. You're in that elite guard. Not, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. 
He's not going after the children of death. He's not going after his own children. He's got them. Why would he waste any? He'd be a stupid devil to waste his ammunition on those he's already killed. Satan understands that secret sin in a spiritual man will paralyze him. All his power and authority will be gone. And if sin is persisted on, it becomes habitual. He knows the man can no longer speak for God, can no longer have any impact on anyone living in sin. The Bible says, on the King James, it said, dead flies in the ointment. But in the original Hebrew, it says, flies of death cause the ointment of the pocket theory to send forth a stinking savor, smell. So doth the little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. He says, God says, I want to, I want to show you. He's speaking from his word. I want to show you. It's, the, it's that dead fly. It's what you think insignificant has not been judged. And you, that the enemy comes and just throws in that sweet-smelling savor, that prayer life. There's a dead fly. See, there's a compromise. There's something of the world. There's something out of sin. There's something of flesh. And, and he, the Bible says, the dead fly in your oil of anointment, your oil of unction, your oil of anointing, a dead fly, that one thing that God's been dealing with, that one thing. He said, that that beautiful aroma has been coming up again to send forth a stench to stink up the place. And anyone who's been touched with the favor of God and held in honor. You see, the Lord says, no dark place in our hearts. Nothing that the enemy can touch. Satan comes with nothing in me. And there's a reason for that, and that'll unfold here as you see it in just a moment. You see, the devil's plan is to put this fly of death, just a touch of flesh, a touch of the world, let me tell you what's at stake. And the reason Satan's now focusing all his power on the spiritual man. Paul sets forth the issue, and here it is. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. Paul said, now there's a spiritual man and there's a natural man. The spiritual man knows the mind of Christ. He's full of the Holy Ghost. No part dark, no flies of death in him. He's got spiritual wisdom. He has revelation from God. He has an open heaven. And God reveals his mind to the spiritual man. The scripture says, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Things that no man can know. And God gives it. And speaks it through those who are spiritual. Paul said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He said, When you came to hear me preach, and when I came to Corinth, he was speaking about his visit to Corinth, and he said, When I came to you, he said, I determined to know nothing among you save Christ and Him crucified. Because Paul knew that congregation. They were living in fornication, incest. They, they were living in covetousness. They, they were coming and drinking unworthily at the Lord's table. And he said, uh, he, 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 he said, I had to make a determination how I was going to come to you. 
I can't come with wisdom. He said, I learned it at Athens that I can't match my wits with the world. He said, I determine when I come to you, I'll know nobody. I'll preach nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But he said, when I came to you, and this is in retrospect, he's looking back, and in a letter he said, when I came to you, you know how I came. Some of you said my, my speech was contemptible. You could hardly stand my, my delivery. But he said it wasn't in my preaching. It wasn't in man's wisdom. But I had an anointing on me. I had heard from heaven. And I came in the demonstration of the Holy Ghost and power. Now, what is that? Demonstration of the Holy Ghost. We have a lot of people who think the demonstration of the Holy Ghost, people falling on the floor, wiggling, shaking. Now, God can shake you and wiggle you. I, I, I believe God can take people and just prostrate them. I'm not mocking that. But that's not what Paul's talking about. The demonstration of the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with Paul's body. It was not raising his voice like I'm raising mine right now because a loud voice doesn't, it doesn't imply anointing. Sometimes when you get anointed, you can't help it. You just explode. But that does not designate the anointing. See, the demonstration of the Holy, Sp Holy Spirit was not some... Our, our countenance that changed in Paul. He was not doing anything but quietly delivering the word of God. And there was suddenly a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. It was the word of God delivered through a spiritual man. You see, the Corinthians had moved out of the spiritual realm into the natural realm. And that's what's happening to the church of Jesus Christ today. You sit in front of a television and you drink and drink and drink and I'm telling you, slipping hour by hour into the natural man that can no longer comprehend the things of God because you lose your discernment. And now Paul said, I'm coming to Corinth to a natural people living in the flesh. They're natural again. They're not spiritual men and women. They're carnal the carnal man is the natural man. He said, I couldn't even speak to you as spiritual people anymore. Demonstration of the Holy Ghost with power was the effect his preaching had on the hearers, on the people, on the Corinthians. And let me give you an explanation of the demonstration, and here it is. You see, Paul had preached about separation and holiness. But be not, unequal, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Come out from among them. Be separate and clean. Touch not the unclean thing. Touch not the unclean thing. And that word of Paul was so anointed of the Holy Spirit. There was a demonstration. Life change is the demonstration. People walking out of the house of God with a message they can't shake out of their head or out of their heart. And they have to act on it because the Holy Spirit keeps moving them in the direction of the word they've received. And here it is. You sorrowed to repentance. You were made sorry after a godly manner. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what cleansing, what carefulness, what clearing of yourself, indignation, what zeal, what fear. 
What vehement desire, what revenge. In all things you've approved yourselves clear in this matter. He said you wouldn't eat, sleep, you wouldn't do anything until you made sure you lined up to the word that I preached. They had drifted from Christ and were compromising. You see, folks, here's the dilemma. We go out now. Let me put it as simply as I can. You show me a church of 10,000, 25,000 people, masses coming. And those that come to church, if they're not a preaching of repentance, if they're not changing, they're, they're all natural people. They're carnal. They're still living in sin because there's no message and there's no conviction and no Holy Ghost moving in the church. And if the man in the pulpit is just a man of ambition, if he too is in the natural and he is in the flesh, then I'm going to tell you that a whole congregation could go to hell because they've never had a message. They don't understand. There's nobody there to open their eyes. There's no message from heaven that pierces the wall. There's nothing that gets through to the heart. And I'm convinced there's many people are going to hell in the church than anywhere else in society. Going to hell right in church because natural men are speaking to natural men and they don't understand. The divorce rate in the church equals the divorce rate in the world now. The divorce rate in the ministry equals the divorce rate in secular society. What a sad comment. Now what's my point? Satan knows that men seduced back into the realm of the natural can no longer hear or receive a word that can change a life. I was blinded. There's no message, no anointing, nothing that pierces the heart. And that's why Satan's going after every spiritual elder, deacon, Sunday school teacher, anyone in any kind of ministry, choir, going after with everything out of hell. And I'm telling you, folks, there's never been a time when you have been more tested than you are now. Come on now. You have never been more tested. Your faith has never been more tried than it is now. I was talking to a neighbor recently. I just walked over, talked to him. He was drinking. He said, are you the reverend? I said, yeah. He said, I, I thought some old foggy preacher's going to move next to me when you moved here. He said, but I checked you on the Internet. He said, I think you're okay. <laughs> he, he said, i got to talk to you, sir. He said, I, my wife left me two years ago. I had a... I was a high-up executive in a company, and he named the company. He said, two years ago, they just fired me. No explanation, just cut me off after almost 20 years of service. 
And he said to top it off, the only thing I'd left was my dog, and I loved that dog, and it was killed. Car accident. Car ran over. A police officer ran over. And he said, I've been here two years just drinking. Here's a natural man. And I just stood listening to this man. I said, oh, God. Tony, away. I can get one word to that man. Gets to his heart. There better be nothing in my life that hinders the voice of God. I had better hear from heaven. I don't want any dead fly in me. And I'm thinking, God, no dead flies. And I thank God I could stand there and the Lord says, you have the word. And I gave him just two or three paragraphs, two or three cutting sentences. I know it right to his heart. And I, I look out of my room where I pray and I look right over to his house and I know the Holy Ghost is there moving. He's still quoting those words over and over again. They were just probably two paragraphs, but it got right to you to the heart. Folks, never in history have we needed, have we needed spiritual people who know the mind of Christ. And they can stand against the world and all of the natural thing that, that's just destroying mankind. And have that word that penetrates and changes where there's a demonstration of the Holy Ghost. Folks, tonight, this, after, this morning and all day, you may sit quiet. You may not even respond emotionally to what I'm saying. But I hope and pray when you walk out the door, God will have said something to you that will change your life. Make some changes. Your life has already been changed, but make those changes that are necessary to come into the fullness that the Lord has prepared for you. And so, well, Brother Wilson, uh, what's God going to do about all this? If the devil has a plan, what does, does God have a plan? Well, I want to tell you something. The, de the, the Lord is not going to come down and fight your battle with the devil. He's already done that. He's already conquered the devil. He, he's, made, he, he's been victor. He's beyond the reach of Satan. The devil can't tempt him anymore. But he says, now, you resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, God doesn't have to change his plan. He's had one eternal purpose from the beginning, and that, that's focus on Jesus Christ, and we know that. But let me show you, and, and I've read this over and over again, but the Holy Spirit pointed this out to me. What I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting to achieve and is achieving now in this last hour. And this amazing verse in Isaiah 9-7, don't turn there, but because of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of that government, there shall be no end. In other words, there, from the very time that the government of God was established, those... Through the testimony of Jesus Christ, He is Lord. The Holy Spirit says, I've come and inhabit you, but I come to govern your life. And it implies that once you come under the government of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Christ, when you come under that government, there's to be a continual increase. There has to be an increase. We increase in obedience and submission, subjection. To all that the Word of God speaks to us until this nothing, nothing is believed, nothing is done, everything is judged by the Word of the Lord, by the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
of the increase of his government. Are you under the government of the Holy Spirit? This is how I believe God is going to protect his leadership. He's going to protect all of those who are in the spiritual man. He's going to protect you, not by... He, he's not going to end pornography. Evil men are going to wax worse and worse, the Bible said. Things are going to get so bad that sexual content will be bestial. It'll be incestuous. It'll be with children. It's going to be with animals. It's going to be the most incredible filth and smut the world's ever known. And, and God's not going to stop that right now until the end. The devil's going to come with his flood. The flood is going to increase. The flood tides are going to get higher. But he's going to build up a spiritual immunity. He's going to do something in the hearts of his people. Because the government of Jesus Christ is going to increase more and more. He's going to have a body who are more and more subjected to the Holy Ghost. Who cry out for that direction. Who submit themselves in prayer and to the word of God. And they begin to judge their sins righteously. We're to judge righteous judgment. Now, I want you to follow me before I close. I'm going to wrap this up in just a moment. Verse 7 again. He will establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even for more. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will perform it. God says that zeal means jealousy. He said, I, in the last days, he, when he sees this attack of the enemy... God says, I'm going to rise with a jealousy, and I'm going to accomplish my purpose. And my purpose, as he describes here, I'm going to bring divine order, and I'm going to bring forth a spirit of judgment. Now, that's not, that, that is not judgment against us. This has to do with something far different. It's something he's going to do in our hearts, a spirit of judgment against anything that Satan throws against us. In other words, the Holy Ghost is going to make you a magistrate of your own heart. And the word there is litigate. It means everything that comes. And here's what Paul the Apostle said in, in 1 Corinthians 2.5. He that is spiritual, listen, he that is spiritual judges all things. He judges all things. That means that everything that the enemy throws into his life, every temptation, everything he's involved in, every waking hour, he's judging everything that influences or affects his life. He's judging it. He's a magistrate. And the Lord has empowered him by his spirit to sit as a judge over his own life. He said, if we judge ourselves, we shall not be judged. Do you know that scripture? Let me put it plainly. If you're flirting, you're flirting with a married person, or another man's wife, or another one's husband, that's adultery. Judge it. Call it what it is. It's sin. Call it. The Bible says, set no wicked thing before your eyes. You just brought in a video. And you said, no, oh, it's just PG or PG-13. It, it's just Walt Disney. And suddenly, here's God's name being cursed. What are you going to do? Are you just going to justify it? Are you going to judge it? Will you sit there and allow the Holy Ghost just to stir your heart? He will do it. He will stir your heart. And he'll do it out of love because he says, I need your anointing. I need a voice. 
I need to penetrate this wicked world. I need you. I'm not mad at you, but I need your voice. And he's going to convict you. You either justify it, or you judge it and say, this could cost my anointing. That's enough. Judge it. You find yourself slipping into a little bit of gossip, and the Holy Ghost suddenly says, hey, this is wrong. This is wrong. And you agree with the Holy Ghost, yes, it's wrong. And you stop and shut your mouth and walk away. Judge it. You see, David sinned, and he wouldn't judge his sin for a whole year. God didn't break his covenant with David. He didn't break the covenant. He's not going to break his covenant with you. But he said, a prophet. And what the issue was, David, until you agree with the Holy Ghost, until you judge your sin and call it what it is, and not justified. David had been justified. And as soon as David stopped justifying his sin, then the promises of the covenant were renewed in his life. And every covenant promise of God awaits the moment that you and I agree with the Holy Ghost and say, this is sin. I'm not going to call it by another name. I'm going to judge it. I can't, I can't live in unbelief. Unbelief is the mother of all sins. And you find yourself doubting God and questioning God. Oh, come on, folks. Judge it for what it is. It's sin. And if we don't judge it, all we're doing is preaching eternal security. We have to judge our sins because He has given us the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ in us. We have the Holy Ghost. And I'll tell you, the moment you agree with the Holy Ghost, He comes with every covenant promise, and the Bible makes it clear. This scripture, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard against... And I looked up that word standard, and you know what it really means? A flip of the finger. And the moment you agree with the Holy Spirit... The moment you judge your sin and say, I'm not going to lose my anointing. I'm not going to have a fly in my ointment. I'm not going to let the devil rob me of my effectiveness. And I judge my sin. When that happens, the Holy Ghost comes and flits away the power of hell in your life. Just the flick of his finger. It's done. It's finished. He empowers you with his glorious power. That's the demonstration of the Holy Ghost and power. The demonstration is judging your sin. The power comes flowing in. Glory be to God. What a mighty God. What a mighty God we serve. Please stand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. My God, my God. Oh, Jesus. Would you just raise your hands and tell them how much you love him? In the annex, wherever you're at, raise your hands. Tell them how much. Come on, just tell them from your heart, Lord, I love you and I need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, we need you in this day. Oh, bless your name. Hallelujah.
Hallelujah. You can put your hands down. Lord, you so love your people. You so love your pastors and shepherds and all those in leadership. They're your family. They're, they're bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. And you will not allow the enemy to destroy. You're going to come forth, Lord, with great governing power. You're going to manifest by your spirit the law of God written in the heart. Bringing us under subjection to your word and your spirit. And Lord, we're going to be more than overcomers. Not just overcomers, but more than overcomers. Hallelujah. Now, Lord, I'm asking for a demonstration of power. Demonstration of your spirit with power to change us. For those that are here now, and while we're speaking, Holy Ghost, you were just pointing out something. Perhaps a dead fly, a fly of death. Something that the Holy Ghost has been just peacefully, wonderfully, lovingly nagging us about. Saying, change it. Make a change before it becomes a habit. and You no longer see it as sin. You justify it. Oh, Lord, we want to agree with the Holy Ghost. You call it what it is. If you're here this afternoon, or this morning, and something in the message this morning, something grabbed your heart, I don't know how to put this other than as I feel like the Holy Spirit that you know that you are not where you ought to be in Christ. Especially if you've, you've been walking with God for a long time. If you've been hearing a lot of messages, you've been hearing the Holy Ghost speak and cry and woo and whisper to your heart and you keep putting it off and putting it off. It's time. It's time this morning to say yes, the Holy Spirit. If there is sin, He's not here to condemn you. He's here to say, I will not lose you. I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to make a little bit of misery in your heart. I'm going to convict you, but I do it because I need you. If you're a husband, I, I, you need that spiritual authority and you need His guidance. If you're a wife, or if you're a mother and you have children, you need spiritual authority. You're not going to get through your kids without spiritual authority. If there's anything that you know in your life, in all honesty, that can rob you of that spiritual authority, I want you to get down to this front and just stand here with me, and we're going to pray and ask God to have you call it what it is and believe God to come with His Spirit and give you a freedom this morning. And you walk out of here the power of Christ. What I believe the Holy Spirit is leading me to say, and I always say it lovingly, this congregation, I say it to as a father. Hundreds of you on, uh, go to work, you're on the job, you work in offices, you work with other people of other sex. You women work with men, and some of you men work with women. And I'm telling you now, the Lord made it clear to me that I have to say this. Many of you now, Right now, I have to ask God to help you 
stop your flirtation. It's not become, a, not become an act yet, but the seed is there. You come with anticipation, and every time that man or that woman passes you, there's something going on in your heart. The Lord says, call it what it is. It's adultery. It's adultery. If you look upon another woman or another man with lust, Jesus said, that's adultery. Call it what it is. And say, Lord, I want that change now. That's the demonstration of the Holy Ghost. And God, when you say that, God will come with the power of your spirit. There will be a demonstration of the Holy Ghost and power. So right now, deal with that. If, if you, all the pastors, including myself, we have, we have warned you about your viewing television and, and the filth and the films that you bring into your home and everything else. In these areas, if that has to be dealt with, agree with it right now. Agree with it. If you don't have the zeal, or you live in a situation where you can't remove a television from your home, and your husband or your wife disagree with you, all right, fine. But I'm going to tell you something. Ask the Lord. When you sit there, say, Lord, the moment you see it or hear her God's name, curse, you get out of the room. You go somewhere else and get out, go shopping, do whatever you have to do. Take an act. An act that says, Lord, I, I will not cast my eyes upon that which is evil. And when you walk the streets, ask God to give you clean eyes. Ask God to help you because the seductions are so overwhelming. And ask God to put you in the habit of listening to the Holy Spirit. It becomes a wonderful habit. The Holy Spirit is so quick, so quick. It's a loving judgment. It's something the Lord says, I do this for you because I so love you. I do this for you because I've done such a miracle in your life, and I want to use you with your neighbors. I want you to be the testimony because I want everything that you say to have an impact on those around you. When your neighbors are sick and afflicted, when somebody around you has a problem, they bring it to you. So you're not just mouthing words that fall to the ground, but you're saying things that penetrate the heart. Do you understand that? I said, do you understand that? Even in the annex right now, others in the congregation didn't come forward. God's dealing. He's dealing lovingly with these things that hinder us. They hinder you from the fullness and from the anointing and the blessing, and render you paralyzed, inoperative. So ask God to do something of, of great uh, conviction, a, a loving conviction, so that we determine we're going to walk in the spiritual man. Father, I come now asking you, Holy Spirit, to demonstrate what we're talking about. Holy Spirit, I want to see, and I, I don't want to see it, but I want you to demonstrate in the hearts of these, let there be a manifestation of your Holy Spirit that comes right now and, and just comes and shines the light in and says, yes, I know, Lord, that what I have allowed is sin. And I agree with you, Holy Spirit, that can't go on. It has to stop. And I know, Lord, as I agree with you, you're going to come now with every precious covenant promise. You're going to put a new heart in me on this. You're going, to, you're going to keep me now from falling. You're going to give me a heart after you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this. Would you say this right now? Lord Jesus, I come humbly to you. And I come, Lord Jesus, to submit to your government. I want you to rule my life by the word and the still small voice of the Spirit. I want to obey you, Lord. Help me. I can't do it in my strength. But I believe that the Holy Ghost saved, came and saved me by opening my heart. And I've repented. 
So the Spirit of God is in me. Thank you that you'll guide me. You will keep me. We give you thanks. Now, will you raise your hands and just thank Jesus for his faithfulness to you, Lord? I thank you for your faithfulness and your great love. What a wonderful Savior.